So, Nick, have you done uh, much in the way of slide film uh, shooting and developing? Uh, well, I shot nothing but slide film for most of the first 25 years I took pictures. Really? Yeah, um, because, well, when I first started using uh, my first real camera, which was a Nicromat, uh, I shot slides because I was basically trying to, you know, make a record of the really cool places and things that I, that I visited. And that's what people did in those days. You shot slides cause they were prettier than prints. And cause you could show them on a big screen and like, you know, right. Right. That is, that was really the thing. And I guess it was also, there was an idea that it was somehow more professional because you'd get so much higher resolution and, you know, rich color from slides that, a lot of people who were shooting 35, but for publication, would shoot slide film as a matter of course. So it was really a common thing in, in the 70s when I started shooting. And then from the, there all the way through about 2000, I shot slides exclusively because that is how you advertise your work as an artist. You have to have slides. Right. You, yeah. Or that was what you had to do then. And then when digital came along and really got established, it was a big relief because I'll tell you, having thousands and thousands of slides with tiny little sticky labels that you had to type up and glue on and sort them out and pick the good ones, oh, it was a nightmare. It took a lot of time and money. Um, so, yeah. So I have, uh, I've shot, uh, all of, I think two rolls, uh, of slide film in my life. Now my dad, who was a landscape architect, he shot a lot of slide film to document his work because as right. you said, you know, you, you have to present them. If you're going to be presenting to a group, you need something that you can project. And before the digital projector, that was, uh, definitely the way to go. And he, I remember, I remember being in Kew Gardens in London and mm -hmm. it was a dreary, rainy day and he was shooting Kodachrome 25 and um it and I was I was there and I it, he had a Minolta SRT 102 or Roughly 202 when was this This would have been probably late 80s this okay, is probably I was, late 80s. I was shooting Ectochrome in Kew Gardens in the late 70s. Oh, okay. Okay. We just missed each other. Just missed each other just like that. Um, but the, uh, I remember looking at him and I'm thinking, you know, you're shooting this 25 ASA film. I'm thinking I'm shooting HP5, you know, in my Minolta, uh, mm -hmm. three, X370. And, uh, and he's, and, and I said, what shutter speeds are you using? And he said, uh, I think it's a quarter of a quarter of a second. And I looked at him and I go, and you know, I have shaky hands. I have horribly shaky hands. I can't do anything under basically one sixtieth is pushing it, you know, with a 50 right. millimeter yeah. lens is pushing it for me. And he was, yeah, and he was getting perfectly clean shots. And I was, you know, with my HP five, I was shooting horrible, you know, shaky things. And it was. Made me mad. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, made yeah. Made me well, jealous. The, the human race is going downhill, and we're the proof. Yes, exactly. But <laughs> here's um, about two and a half years ago, um, I saw an eBay auction for multiple cans of uh, multiple 100 foot roll cans of film, and I was really wanting to get some technical pan, and there were uh, I think three rolls of technical pan in this set of 1500 foot rolls. Wow. And so I looked at that and there was also some Agfa pan and there was some other stuff. I forget exactly all of it, but, uh, I, I ended up, 
paying like a hundred eighty dollars for fifteen hundred feet of film, <laughs> and then I sold off seven of those for about two hundred bucks. So I I, right. I really did okay on that. But yeah. the uh, and these are the kinds of deals that would be eaten up today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the two of the rolls, two of the hundred foot rolls were um, Agfa Chrome. And the Agfa Chrome was one of, one of the ones that I sold. And I think that sold for like 40 bucks. Um, and I kept the other Agfa Chrome and I shot two rolls. I rolled up, I think, eight rolls. And I shot two rolls and sent them off to the dark room and got them back mounted and went, eh, I'm not going to do that anymore. But I bought myself an E6 kit. Mm-hmm. And, um, here's, here, I'm going to come full circuit, um, to that, uh, projecting your work type of thing. I just got back. I don't know whether you know this or not, Nick, but I just got back from a trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, on this trip, I'm, yeah, you know, I, for the, everybody, I live in Florida. Um, I was out in Seattle and Victoria, BC, and Nick lives near there. So I stopped in at his house. And, and we met for the first time, which was, I thought, very cool. Um, but the, I, I came back and just a couple of nights ago, uh, was over at some friend's house showing our pictures off. Um, and what we, you know, we hooked it up to a big screen TV and I had my laptop and I showed everything and I kept thinking, I want a projector. I want a projector. Mm-hmm. I want this in slides. I want this yeah. to be a projector. But sure. Um, you know, I I think that that may be something that I do. Uh, I'd have to get a slide mount mounting kit and all this. And with- I I would say that it's worth doing. It's a lot of fun. But I I have to say that recently I did a, a like a really high resolution digitization of some of my better Kodachrome slides from the seventies, uh-huh. and they actually look better in my, you know, the digital scans than when I used to project them with my ordinary slide projector because the slides have so freaking much information in them compared to, you know, regular film that they actually way outperform, you know, even a good slide projector. There's an incredible amount of detail in a 35 millimeter slide. So they can stand, I mean, it definitely go ahead and project them. It's a lot of fun. But you're actually going to get the most out of them if you do a really high resolution scan. It's amazing what's in there. Yeah, so, anyway. so that's something that that uh, that I think I'm going to be uh, be, be working towards uh, as we uh, as Ectochrome gets reintroduced. Uh, I keep looking for some freshish uh, slide film so I can match it against my uh, Agfachrome that has an. Uh, August 1992 expiration date on it. So um, just to, you know, compare. Well, it, if it's been kept cold, then it's probably decent. The trouble with slide film is it's you have to really adjust because there's no room at all to, mis- right. to get your exposure wrong. And, and that's such a, it's a really big deal. So if you shoot of scenes with a limited dynamic range, or if you commit yourself to either the shadows or the highlights, and that works with the image you happen to, to want it to, to get, you can get a good result. But if you're even off by a half a stop, it can be, it can be crap. I mean, it's, it, it's much harder to work with slide film. And so it's easy to be disappointed. And, and when I was using it professionally, I would 
bracket the crap out of every single shot. And it was expensive, but it was the only way, no matter how good your camera and light meter was, it was the only way to get, you know, the best possible image because you never were quite sure within a third of a stop, <laughs> you know, it, no matter how careful you are, you know, it just was easier to bracket. And so you end up throwing away a lot of pictures away. In the I, I'm sure I'll sunny 16 that up. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't really yeah. do that. And there are images that just aren't suited to slide film. Like the narrow dynamic range is very limiting. I, now that I'm completely addicted to color print film and, and can really make use of it, which I couldn't do before the digital era because I couldn't afford the, you know, the, the top end color printing process that you would need to see what's there. The ability to do your own color work inexpensively is, is a wonderful thing. And now I'm addicted to this really wide dynamic range of print film. And, and I have a hard time talking myself into shooting slides. But I did shoot a little bit. And I would recommend that you try a slide film that's got a rolly name. And I'm not okay. sure who really really makes it. I can look it up for you. But it's a, it's a rolly something or other. It makes everything look golden. So if the picture okay. is suitable to look golden... It's incredible. It's really, really, really detailed, fine, fine grain, beautiful color. It's wonderful stuff. Uh, and, you know, it's, and it is fun because you can turn your little 35 millimeter camera into, you know, a pretty serious, uh, recording device with slide film. I mean, that, that is true. Uh, on the other hand, the portraits are getting really up there and I'm now addicted to, to Portrait 800. That's an unbelievable film. I haven't shot the 800, but, um, it's I've shot a quite a bit. Thing. Yeah, I've shot quite a bit of the 160 and quite a bit of the 400. Um, Me and... too, and I'm <clears throat> I'm bowled over by the 800. I thought there'd be some sacrifice. I thought, oh, it'll be, I don't know, something about it won't be as good because it's a higher ISO, and as far as I'm concerned, it's better <laughs> okay. in every way, like finer grain, better color. I, I don't know what the deal is. It's more expensive. That's what the deal is. But uh, <laughs> it's beautiful film. I really yeah. love it. Well, on that note, let's start the Homemade Camera Podcast. covered the body of the camera we've talked about the lens we've talked about the shutter and the aperture uh today we should probably talk about the film transport mechanism including like film holders for large format camera and ultra large format cameras um so let's talk about that yeah and we're gonna we're gonna want to talk about some of the many different ways that cameras kind of handle film some of those systems are more useful for homemade cameras than others, but it's a good idea to survey the whole range of, you know, ways that this has been done in the past because some of them can be adapted into homemade. You know, if you're going to build a camera from scratch, you might want to try some of the more exotic methods. But the most straightforward approach is the removable film backs. Uh, most of them are on medium and large format cameras. Um, they're really useful because once you have one, you can just keep putting it on different cameras. And so, and they're the better ones do a great job of 
what do they need to do? Well, we'll get to that. Um, but the removable film backs are, are come in many forms. So the general survey that we're going to do will actually uh, apply to a lot of those. Um, and then at the end, we can talk about those because they're so useful for homemaking. Sure. So what does the film transport mechanism do? Well, the film transport, basically its job is to get fresh film in front of the lens one frame at a time. Uh, it's it's going to determine the shape and format of that image. And it tries to, if in the case of roll film, where the um, film moves sideways past the film gate or vertically past the film gate, it has to space it so that there's a little gap between each image so that it's easy later to, uh, to separate your images out. Um, in many systems... It, the film transport me mechanism also makes sure that the exposed frames are protected from accidental fogging. So, you know, there has to be some uh, provision to keep stray light from getting through. Um, and we'll get into the details of why that matters later. Um, there are fancy ones that run the film all the way onto the sp onto a spool and then retract it back into the cartridge as you shoot. And that's the point of that is if you suddenly need to take the film out of the camera, the stuff you've already shot is protected inside the cartridge. You know, so like a reporter might want to, you know, dump the film halfway through to get it into the, you know, in the old days back when you did this into the dark room, you could stop in the middle, whereas without having to rewind the film. And if you open it by mistake, you wouldn't ruin the images you'd already taken. A large format when handled properly um, also has to indicate whether you've taken the picture or not, because it's too easy to get confused. Um, so there's to be a way to mark when it, an image has been, ex when a piece of film has been exposed. And then many of the more advanced film transport mechanisms are designed to communicate uh, with a specific model of camera. So that type will have features that won't work unless it's connected to its, you know, its parent camera. And they're not as useful if you want to, you know, steal them for some other camera. Um, and they might do things like prevent you from making double exposures or prevent you from skipping a frame, you know, and forgetting to take a picture. Um, and they go back a long way. They, they've been around for, since at least mm, they started really getting common in the forties and fifties, I think, but they might even be older. Yeah. Okay. Um, from, from my reckoning, there are three major types of film transport mechanism in use today. Um, and the three types are, uh, the paperbacked roll film. Um, and that is essentially 120, 620. Uh, you can get what? 116 paper or 116 film from the FPP, uh, things like that. And that paperbacked roll film, um, usually has a numbering system on the back. And so if you're using one of the older cameras or one of the more primitive, um, homemade cameras, that numbering system, you know, allows you to, uh, align, align the frames properly. And, but on more advanced, um, cameras that, uh, number or that it, uh, measured advance is done, uh, internally without the, uh, the need for the windows. So it's paper based, uh, paper backed film. And then there are sprocket based uh, systems and those sprocket based systems are like for 35 millimeter, uh, cameras. 
And then there are also single sheet systems. And those are the uh, large format um, sheet holders. Um, uh, film yeah, holders. One, yeah. one, pic- one picture at a time. So... Right. Now, also by my reckoning, there are a ton load of other systems that have been used in the past or are still used in minor systems. So uh, we're talking like um, 126 uh, and 110 films from Kodak and then the 16 millimeter Minox uh, cartridges. And those are full cartridge systems where the take up reel and the supply reel are fully contained within a plastic case. Um, then we have the pack films, um, like the current Polaroid originals and Fuji Instax. And we'll talk about those a little bit later on. Um, then we have the roll films and the roll films like, um, uh, the older classic Polaroid systems and, and what they were, uh, were essentially like the peel apart film that we had up until Fuji discontinued it, uh, what, three years ago or so. Um, and, but it was end to end, um, instead of in a pack. And it was, uh, you know, essentially a roll and you would tear off a bit and, and use it that way. Um, they're wet plate and dry plate systems. Uh, and those are single shot. You load your camera, you take it out of the dark room, you bring it back into the dark room to unload it, that type of thing. And then mm-hmm. there are also single shot systems. You want to talk about these single shot systems? Uh, well, that's the same idea. Um, it, what you, what you described, wet plate and dry plate, the main difference between that and, you know, a large format film holder is just that the plate is a different kind of object. So if it's a piece of glass, you need a special holder that can hold the piece of glass. And some of the old wet plate processes, you have basically, you don't have any time to screw around. Some of them you had to shoot while the emulsion was still wet. So you basically made your film, immediately exposed it, and then immediately developed it. So you needed uh, a, a way to hold the film that could accommodate all this rushing around and dumping things into tanks of poison and all that. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then the, uh, the, the thing that I think you're, referring to is the, the most primitive form of all which is if if you make a shoebox into a camera you can just take that into a dark place a dark bag or a dark room and you can just stick a piece of photo paper in there and put the lid back on and that, now that's a that's a film transport system that is basically just using your hands and a dark sure. place <laughs> um, <laughs> right and i've actually seen some wonderful cameras uh there's one uh, where people actually kept the film inside the camera the entire time and have like basically like a light proof glove that sticks inside. You could stick your hand in the glove and prop up the film, take the picture and then develop the film inside the camera. You know, you do the whole thing inside the camera by hand. So that, you know, you could, you can, you can certainly cheat all kinds of ways, but it's not very practical for, you know, street photography to have your hand inside the camera, you know, holding the film. <laughs> not and not be arrested, right? You know, uh, right, that, right. that looks like a terrorist machine. Now I was just <laughs> listening to the last, as of this recording, the last, uh, uh, lensless podcast. And, um, that would have been, uh, June 30th or thereabout, uh, June 29th, uh, episode. And they had a woman named, uh, Heather, and I'm going to ruin her last name, uh, Oculus, I think it is. 
Um, and or Oklaus, yeah. Okla- yeah, something along those lines. And uh, they said it at the beginning and then I never went back and listened to it. But her website is cameracarma.com and she uses, um, what we would call an array of film. And this is something that, well, she uses, shoots onto paper usually. But the concept of the array is she has a, um, a box truck. Um, and she has a, a hole in the side of it that she, you know, puts a, puts a little pinhole in. Um, uh, and on the other side of it, she has this magnetic wall and she puts sheets of, of paper up on this magnetic wall and, uh, and uses little magnets. And nice, that nice. creates an array of, you know, of, paper and and then she shoots a um a, a pinhole and i forget what she said it was it was like f 1750 <laughs> something like that and there were like 20 minute exposures and um and it's not bad right exactly yeah. exactly but she says but then i gotta sit in the back of the truck for 20 minutes you know so right. uh it's really well worth going back and listening to that podcast if you don't it's the lensless podcast um, and it's all about pin pinhole, but there's a, there's a guy who's doing giant uh, tin types that way. They're really like, okay with it. Yeah. He's got a truck with it and he's doing tin types that are bigger than poster size, you know, really big. Okay. So, so yeah. And here's something that I was thinking about as she was describing it before I went to her website and actually saw what she was doing. Um, I was thinking that she was using eight by 10 sheet film holders. And that she had a series of them up on this wall. Now, that was what I thought. But then I thought, well, why not? You know, or you could do it with 4x5 since 4x5 is proportionally cheaper. Um, you could have an array of, say, uh, 5 across um, and, well, it would be 5 across and 5 down, right? Because well, it's it going to be, be either film. horizontal. Well, you could just the, use photo paper or something. But yeah, well, and that's what she does is she does photo paper and then she, she displays them as, as negatives. Um, mm-hmm. so it's a negative image and they're compelling. You please mm-hmm. go to her website once again, cameracarma.com. But the, um, the thing about it is I, if you did it with eight by 10, or excuse me, sorry, if you did it with a film negative, then you can enlarge it proportionally. So then you enlarge that each one to a 16 by 20 and suddenly you're at the size of the side of a building. It could very easily scale up is what I was thinking with that. And you could, you know, and we've seen, um, several, uh, I think I sent you and I believe me, I wish I remembered who did this, but there was, um, that one camera that had like two, two rolls of 120 in the center and then Mm -hmm. two rolls of 35 on either side of that. And it was just an incredible, I mean, you end up with a huge amount of, of, um, uh, of space of, of imageable space. Uh, and then you've got to advance them all the right amount and then all that type of stuff. So, I mean, I can understand what the problem is, but this array concept really has, it's really kind of grabbed my imagination. Well, I find it exciting too, and especially if you're thinking in terms of using photo paper, um, because 
8x10 photo paper, you can scan in any old scanner and get a really high quality result. And so it's actually a very practical way. And if, especially if you're doing kind of this low resolution camera type thing, you can get your resolution back by making essentially a really big negative. The other thing is it's the analog version of digital stitch images. And that's how you can make huge digital images by taking a whole bunch of photos and stitching them together. I do that all the time and it's really useful. There was, um, and this was something that I didn't think about until I sat down and I looked at this, um, tonight, but there was a talking heads album where the Mm -hmm. cover Mm -hmm. was a portrait of the band, but it was all with Polaroids and, you know, yeah. Okay. So I forget when, which one that was, but, um, that is, uh, that's just a very similar, uh, type of system. Sure. And, there, yeah, various artists have done that in the past, but this is this is especially as a way to make a bigger camera. It's a really interesting approach. And and one of the things that she talked about also was if you are doing something that ends up being say 168 inches by 228 inches, you have to get that to a gallery. Well, all she does is stack them up <laughs> and send them in one box. And, and she, and she was talking about how, how convenient that was. So um, I, I think she's, she's got some inspiration there for, for the rest of us. Yeah. Well, that's all right. So there you go. That's the most extreme version of uh film transport system where you need an entire truck and right. walk around inside there and do it all yourself. All right. But there are more convenient uh, systems. So, Moving on for a more convenient process, what is a sprocket-based system? Okay, so the sprocket-based system, which is essentially in almost every 35 millimeter camera, short of those late, very late um, autofocus cameras. Some of those late autofocus cameras um, used uh, a, a completely different system for measuring the film. But the idea hmm. is that you have... Um, uh, usually it's a wheel, um, that has a, two sprockets on it and those sprockets are what actually advance the film. So as you, as you pull the lever, the film advance lever, it is moving that wheel a certain number, you know, a certain number of turns. That's how chainsaws work. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's exactly how chainsaws work. Now, a lot of people mistakenly think that when you roll, you know, you take your film, you're, you're, you pull it over and you load it onto that take up sprocket that, that, or the take up reel, that the take up reel is what's doing the advancing of the film. And that's not true. So the, the take up reel, what it does is it has enough tension to roll the film that has been advanced by the sprocket. And, but if it, uh, you know, it has some clutching in there so that it doesn't pull on that too much so that the, you know, it pulls it, um, out, past out the of sprockets, position. Right, right, right. Out of, out of position. Now That's there, interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some, I had, uh, my Eden, my Edenex, which is made by Vergen. Um, it has a deal where I have to do a little kind of fiddly thing to make sure that the take up reel doesn't pull too hard. Um, and, and so it's just a little thing, you know, it's a 50 year old camera, 80 year old camera. 
Um, so, uh, so, you know, that's part of it. So, um, in a sprocket based system, the take up reel doesn't drive the film. It's, do you know, do you know what the origin of sprocket based system is? It, 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 35 millimeter film was movie film. Exactly. So, and when they, they started using it, I already had the sprocket holes in it and they were just like, well, let's design cameras that take advantage of that. And it's stayed ever since. So there are advantages of those sprockets. Um, one of them is slippage is pretty much eliminated because unless you start tearing through the sprocket holes on the film, you know, you're, you're, you've got the same, it, you know, and every, it also assuming that everything is properly calibrated on the camera, you've got that same spacing every time and it works very sure. well. Um, it does have some disadvantages though. Well, I can think of, a, I can think of some sure the the sprocket holes, um, take up a bunch of space. So you're essentially wasting film with sprocket holes, quite a bit of film. Um, so nor- normally there's 24 millimeters of usable height. And I guess that means that about a third of the film is being wasted as sprocket holes. And there are people who use those as part of the image, but you know, that's only fun for a little while and then it gets annoying. So especially um, with color film, color film then has all of those barcodes and all that stuff across the edge i don't need to see this sprocket somewhere. right now they do use that to, to put information but 120 film usually has a thin little a thin little border too because there needs to be some film wasted in a good film transport system because if the, the transport system needs to hold the film flat as well as move it and usually you need at least a little of the edge of the film to tuck behind some kind of guides to, to keep the film really flat uh, but you don't need as much of, you know, as the sprockets take up. And uh, I just thought of another disadvantage of sprockets. If you're, uh, if you're not careful and you get to the end of the roll of film and you stubbornly try and advance it, it's powerful enough to rip the film out of the cartridge. And now, and then you're really in trouble because the only way you're going to retrieve that film is to go into a dark room or a dark bag and, and unload it. Or into your, in, into the closet of the hotel room in Seattle. Yeah, on yeah, the under the day. covers or whatever. <laughs> right, yeah, right, just like Aid right, did, right. um, uh, Aid was talking about early on in the, um, in the, uh, Sunny 16 podcast. Well, I, I just did that in Seattle. And the very first day I go down, uh, I'm shooting film, shooting film, shooting film. I advance too far and pull it right off, pull it right off the end. Yeah, right. So just come on, I can get one more picture. No, you can't. Don't try. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. One right. of the things, one of the things that, you know, once again, it's not really a sprocket system, but the more modern point and shoot cameras, the ones that were done at the end of the film run and, and the more modern, um, uh, SLRs, one of the things that they did was they advanced your film all the way into, you know, they, they pulled all the film out. I mean, then, when you loaded it, when you loaded it, right, 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 and then as as you shot, it would roll it back into the um back into the in, into the thirty five millimeter cassette, so that if you had an accident and you opened the camera, then the only thing that you're going to expose is unexposed film. That's the, all that's going to be fogged. But all those shots um that were that you've already taken are rolled back into the canister, which is something that is really nice. I think, um, I think that that was a really good advancement right at the end with all those plastic cameras that well, I, I, un- shoot. 
<clears throat> I understand why you like it, um, but the reason I dislike it is because it meant that it was a motor drive camera that made a terrible whining noise when you <laughs> <Yeah>. used it. <laughs> right. Although I well, got my gonna... first motor drive camera. I actually, somebody, a, a internet friend just mailed me a gift, a camera he didn't need. Uh-huh. The very first uh, camera with a built-in motor drive, 35 millimeter, and it was a Konica. Okay. And actually, really nice camera. I really like it. It takes double A batteries. Yes. Four of them. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's really fun. It's and, like kind of a miracle. It just I mean, it automatically advances the film and makes an annoying noise every single time you take a picture. And we love those Konica lenses. <laughs> those, yeah. those hexanons are really nice. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I was just looking at uh, some of the other disadvantages of sprocket based yeah. uh, system. Well, we you kind of already covered this, obviously, because there, as the film leaves the cassette, it's vulnerable to being fogged if there's any kind of light leak or if you stupidly open your camera when you shouldn't. Um, and then you can uh, you can work around all that stuff. I mean, those aren't really big disadvantages. Those no. are just things. They're just things to learn about the film. They're yes, really absolutely, problem. absolutely. Yeah. And and once you're uh, yeah, once you're reasonably fluent, it's not an issue. Um, I agree with that. So, uh, what about the uh, backing paper film? And and I, I'm just saying that medium format film is done with a backing paper system, whether or not you use those numbers. But right. Um, so I'm not going to go on about the older versions. Um, what's available now is 120 film, which has a paper backing along the entire length of the film. Sometimes you can buy some 620 film, or no, 220 film, 220 film from the old days, and that may have paper only at the ends in order to squeeze a whole bunch more film into this, the small reel. Uh, and that has some advantages and disadvantages. You can only use it in certain cameras. It's no longer made. But So for most of the standard film is 120, has paper, it's full length, with a set of... Three, actually, three sets of numbers written all along that paper backing, which provide a way to measure the film advance by eye. And there would be your film holder or camera will have a little window in the back, often covered with a red filter to protect against extra light leak, which allows you to peek through and see the correct row of numbers for this, the format of film you're using. So if you're using a 6 by 6 format you need to advance a little more than six centimeters with every shot and so they've got little marks a one and a two and a three on the back of the paper that are a little farther apart than six centimeters so as you peer through the window you turn your knob until you see that number appear and usually there's some like funny little marks that sort of warn you that it's coming because with a lot of the cameras you can't back the film up and so if you're eagerly rolling forward and you go too far You'll have too much space between your last picture and your new picture, and then the, the the picture you're taking will overlap onto the the next picture. So you have to actually pay attention. But the advantage of that is that it's really simple. You just need a hole in the back of the camera and a knob to turn the the take up reel. You reel the film from left to right. When you're all done, it's all rolled up on a new spool, and that's it. You're done because the paper's protecting it. You can just take it out of the camera and. Uh, you're ready to go. Absolutely. In fact, I would say that when I build a camera, um, I that's one of the th reasons why I build a lot of medium format cameras is because of that simple system. 
Um, and, uh, it also has the advantage of if you, okay, uh, I'll, I'll talk about the 63, um, the, my six by three camera. When I was first testing it, I had it sitting on the back seat of my car and I reached back and grabbed the camera and the lens cone and the body came, but the film, <laughs> the film, uh, um, uh, what you're saying back. is your camera fell apart. My camera <laughs> fell apart. So I lost, certainly lost the, the main frame that was there. And I lost a, a bit of some of the stuff on either side. Some of it, some that was already shot, but, um, some that was, was not yet shot. Um, but I, I, all I did was put them back together, find a rubber band, <laughs> rubber banded together, and then just advanced it, um, you know, a couple of extra frames. And, and I was good to go with the rest of the roll. So, uh, that's one of the things that I love about that paper backing system. Um, the, the common size, um, on a 120, uh, roll of film is the common, common frame size is 56 uh, millimeters tall. So it could be six by nine. It can be six by six. It can be six by 4.5, but that six is really 56 millimeters. So, it's just under that that full six centimeter size, um, but fifty six millimeters of sixty millimeters means that ninety percent of the film can be used in taking that picture. So right. uh, so that's good. Um, it's also the the numbering systems are really flexible, so that you know it, it has. Most of the film out there, Ektar is actually an, uh, an exception. Um, I, I rolled a full Ektar roll all the way through one of my six by nine cameras and never saw a mark. So apparently I've used, no, I've used X. Ektar. Oh, wait a minute. Ektar in a six, six by nine. No, I have actually. I've used it in a red window camera. Re- okay. But are you sure it's a six by nine red window camera? I used it. Yes. I have it. Oh, okay. I'm absolutely sure. Um, well, I. So you must have had a funny role. I, I've actually heard complaints from other people. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe what the they're, maybe that, maybe the maybe six it's... by nine, uh, uh, marker, the ink had run out on the, when they made your paper backing. But I have a camera that only shoots six by nine and I've shot Ektar in it. And I, so I know for sure that it, it, it normally has it. There are a couple of different standards of vertical position of the numbers. So if you mm. look at, if you look at some of the rolls of film or, or you know, uh, sorry, backing paper, you'll see that there's a one and a one and then a two and a two and, you know, that they've got right, a right. couple of different numbers. So I'm wondering if the Ektar just didn't have, uh, for in the space where I, where I was expecting it. But, um, so say you have a six by nine camera, but, or or not a six by nine camera, but you want to shoot something larger. You can use the six by nine number. You can use only the odd numbers and you can get a six by 17 or six by 18 image mm-hmm. in a larger, you know, assuming that the body would work. Um, right. You can design a camera to use any multiple of, of four and a half, six right. or nine centimeters because yeah. those are the three yeah. spacings yeah well and th- and that adds up to quite a lot and you can even if you put more than one red window you can even combine those right if you get super clever uh, but it's you know then you have to kind of make yourself a little cheat sheet <laughs> yeah. it's too easy to get confused but yeah. right right so so that's one of the things that's really nice it is a very flexible system now 
Uh, one of the things I'll say again, I'll talk about my six by three camera. I use the six by six numbers twice. So, uh, when number three comes into the first window, I take a shot and then I move the number three over to the second window. So it's not only multiples, but it can be divisibles as well. So, so your windows on that camera are essentially three centimeters apart. Right. Right. So you're using the same number, but you're taking an image two times, but looking at the number through a different window. Yeah. That's a good solution. Right. So that makes it super flexible. And then of course there are some. Uh, film holders and cameras that use mechanical advance on 120 film. So you don't always have to use the numbers uh, looking through the windows. There are two different ways to use that film. Right. Um, for instance, um, the RB67 and RZ67, are, well, they're six by seven, right? Um, mm-hmm. and so they have, you know, their spacing is, is, different they get 10 shots on a 120 roll whereas a 6x6 camera would get 12 shots on a 120 roll and there must be four rows of numbers no no they don't there there isn't a 6x7 number it's just only works on mechanical right see right right right. you would have to go out with a marker yourself and Mm -hmm. and (laughs) no that's not gonna happen no i don't think so (laughs) um so um you know, uh, so they're, you know, like the Mamaya 7 and um, uh, what was the one? The Fuji 680, GX680. Isn't that what you have? Yeah, that that one's an 8 centimeter. Specimen. Right. So there's yeah. some 6 by 8. Um, now, um, uh, Graflex and um, uh, Graflex made 645, 6 by 6, 6 by 7, and 6 by 9. Did they make a 6 by 8 back? I know. I think the only six by eight back is that one Fuji, and that one you can't even. It's hard to use because it's all electronic. So right, those backs could theoretically be used, but you'd have to figure out how to power them, and you know, right. Um, there, you know, of course, yeah, we already talked about the two twenty film. So, um, so what do you what do you see as the big advantage? We've talked about some of the advantages, right? Um, uh. Of, of the, the paper backed film. Um, you know, they come with, you know, or disadvantages. I'm sorry, disadvantages. Yeah. So it's super flexible. We've covered that. It's, yeah. it's, it, it can be, you can create a lot of different kinds of transport systems that work with it. You can make all kinds of formats happen. I mean, I have a large, long list of formats from very wide panoramas all the way to your three centimeters. I think the skinniest anyone's gone with it, but <laughs> there, there's, there's, it's almost limitless. And, and I, and while we're talking about that, I, I have a fantasy of making a film, uh, back that will move the film whatever amount I want it to, like that you could basically dial in any spacing. That would be really interesting. And I've thought of a few ways to do it, but there's, we're still, that's still on the drawing board. Are you, but you, uh, you want to know what are the disadvantages of that? Yeah. What are the disadvantages? So, I mean, so, some of the systems are a little hard to work with. Like you have, especially the old simple ones where you're just turning a knob and peering through the number. It's very easy to like over roll it too far and have no way to back up. It's easy to lose track of whether you took the picture or not. And so mistaken double exposures happen. Or if you just always think you took a picture, you'll end up with a lot of blank frames, wasting film. So you have to, you have to figure out a system that 
that works for you to keep track of what you're doing because your brain is a big part of the mechanism with those. One thing, um, one, one thing that I just, just drives me nuts is, um, when I'm advancing my film and I advance it too far, you know, I get past that number or I can, or I've got the number only half showing in the window. And, um, I, I don't know whether you know about this, but you know, Todd Schlemmer, who does the, he designs the Terrapin pinholes. Um, he has come out with a new, lid for all of those zero uh zero two thousand pinholes that, that gives you the extra knob gives you the backup knob and there uh apparently there's a oh there like so for running the film in reverse right so that for you, running if you overshoot you can you can reverse it a little bit right right yeah there's a few there's a few cameras that do allow that but it's not that common because in order to if you do that then you risk losing a really taut flat film. So like getting that all just right calibrated so that whether you go forward or back, the film stays flat. That's a, that's a non-trivial problem. Like it takes some, a lot of careful work to get that to be just right. Um, but it, it's a good idea. Definitely. Uh, you know, a, a similar problem with that is um, some of the backing paper has better numbering more, let's say more contrasty numbering on it than other um, you know, notably Ilford films, um, have a very, you know, an almost middle gray numbering on it. Um, and that numbering is difficult to read. And sometimes you got, you have to tilt your camera so that the sun is going through that window, which is the last thing that you want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to tilt it in, uh, in order for it to be read. Now, yeah. the other end of that is, and I know why Ilford has that. Because I have some old Ilford FP4 that um, that I bought and had the old backing paper. Well, that the bat and it had really great numbers on there. It was really good. Well, that ink has transferred to the film, and <laughs> so you get these. You know, you you get this picture, but then you have all of these dots and numbers going across your film. Nice. So I, I understand why they made that change. I just wish they, I wish there was more contrast to be had. So, um, I guess, you know, not ruining your image, um, with the ink is better than. <laughs> yeah. And also a red window is a red window makes sense with regular black and white. Well, with old fashioned black and white film. So early, early films didn't pick up red light. Um, and, and it was part of the reason some old photographs look kind of weird. Um, but panchromatic film does pick up red light and the red window is really kind of this leftover from the old days. You really need to have the, the camera film transport mechanism has to have a tight enough seal with the backing paper that the light that goes through that window that lets you see the numbers isn't going to make it around the edge of the film and fog it. So the red part is almost, it's, it's almost not doing much. And you'll notice that at a certain period, I think it was probably in the, 30s or 40s, whenever the panchromatic film came in, you'll notice that there's a little door on the red window because you're only supposed to open it long enough to advance the film and then close it up again um, because really that, that red isn't magic. It's still letting light in. Yeah. So, and uh, one of the other uh, things with that is just what you're saying. We have to have a hole in the back of the window. Or uh, we have to have that window. Sorry, let me say that again. We have to have a hole in the back of the camera 
for that window in order to, to, uh, if you want to use the most simple method of advancing right. with this type of, uh, system. Um, we also get the, the Holga special and the Holga, Holga special is what we call a fat roll. And that's mm-hmm. when, that's when the film doesn't roll snugly on to that take up reel. And, um, essentially all of the edges of the film are exposed to light now, uh, even though the center of the film should should be okay. The edges of the of the film are exposed to light because they're not within that flange at the bottom of the uh, take up reel. Yeah, I've had several cameras, older cameras, that for one reason or another didn't wind the film tightly enough, and I suppose that it must be that there isn't enough drag. So when you're designing a way to roll film from one reel to another, there has to be enough drag on the system so that as you turn the take-up knob, it will roll tightly. And sometimes a camera, because maybe because it's a wobbly piece of plastic like the Holga or even just an old worn-out camera, it you sometimes run into that problem. And I have a couple cameras. And it also is partly it depends on the film. So if the film is supple enough, then the feeble old camera will work. But if the film's like fighting back because it's got too much memory, it's too stiff, the paper's too thick, whatever, it'll overcome that. Uh, There won't be enough drag. You know, um, I have a couple of the pinhole printed um, uh, cameras. And the pinhole printed, uh, like the the flyer and the clipper, uh, are one's a 6x6 and one's a 6x9. And... The solution that the designer and his name's just escaping me right now. Uh, the solution that he did, he came up with is, um, you know, weather seal that is, um, it's like a foam that's hollow. It's like a, a hollow mm-hmm. tube. Okay. Right. Well, he uses a little strip of that in the supply side to create some drag so that the take up doesn't fat roll. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that's a great system. Uh, yeah, I think that I've, that I've tried great. that and it, it definitely helps. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. uh, so let's talk about, um, sheet film holders. Yeah. So I've used them a little, um, and I'm planning to use them more in the future. What most people are used to is the standard four by five sheet film holders that like my dad used on his crown graphic when in his first newspaper job back in the 1950s. And they are basically just, you know, a, a four by five box that holds two sheets of film, one on each face. And then there's a dark slide on each side that's protecting each of those sheets of film from the light. So you just stick it on the back of the camera, take a pic, pull out the dark slide, take a picture, put the dark slide back. And there's a trick there that you flip the dark slide over when you put it back because they are usually marked and you, you'll, you'll know that if you flip it over and you have a different mark showing that you've exposed that film and those marks are also, uh, you can feel them as well as see them because you, when you load the film, you need to have it started out in the right position. And, but, and, and at the same time, sheet film that's made for these holders has notches cut in one corner so that you can feel which corner to put where, when you're sliding the film into the film holder in total complete darkness. Um, because if you, get the film in upside down, the emulsion will be on the wrong side. It'll, it'll change how it uh, absorbs light and it will also throw the focus plane off slightly. So 
you don't you want the film right ways around so you, you have a, a, a special system and the notches are different for each type of film so if you're in the dark and you get your film mixed up you can tell which kind of film is which so you know certain each brand and iso and and uh i don't know what's the right word uh, kind of each kind of each, film has each its emulsion own mark. Each yeah em- yeah has its own mark um and, you know, they are, in one way, they're really, they can be really wonderful. Um, and we'll, maybe we should list the advantages. Can you think of some? Um, so one of the, one of the advantages, um, is, um, you, you're shooting one frame at a time, right? So, mm-hmm. um, slower is better. I'm, I, I have that right across the um the top of my flicker page is slower is better and autofocus is the devil so uh i <laughs> i don't know whether i i don't know what autofocus has to do with this but the 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 slower is better so you're you're shooting one frame at a time that makes you look and make that decision if it takes you 15 minutes to set up for a picture and then you look through it and it's uh, not quite, right so you, you know it raises your standards it basically. raises your standards absolutely right. um yeah. you know one of the things is you know if you're shooting one you know you load expose and, and process one sheet at a time it's possible to use um the custom development such as um uh the zone system that ansel adams was all about so you know he can he can go through and he can expose for this and develop for this. And so make in other notes. words, so each photograph can have a different time in the developer. Each photograph Absolutely. could have a different filter in front of it when you, when you're processing it in the darkroom. So it allows you to, to customize each, each exposure as opposed to a whole roll. Yeah. Right. You could even do, right. uh, you know, you shoot, you know, shoot with different film. Um, you know, if you want to bracket with the emulsion, you know, um, well, the, the, the classic thing to do was, was to shoot at Polaroid, check that your exposure was good and then put your fancy piece of film in and, and shoot. Mm-hmm. So a lot of large format photographers and studio photographers in the old days used Polaroid the way modern shooters use it, you know, the LCD on the back of a digital camera. It was like a way to right. check your, check your shot. There's, um, also the advantage of just, sheer uh real estate on that negative uh a four by five negative um has very little um that is not exposed um using um a a single sheet holder there's a little bit at the edge but essentially the whole film is used and because it is so big um it gets you know some incredible um, uh, resolution, uh, or resolving power on there. Yeah, um, wonderful. You can also use photographic paper. Um, you can use, uh, um, homemade emulsions. Um, oh, so in other words, the, that, that holder lets you like branch out and, and try other materials than right. just standard, standard film. Yeah, right. Cause it, anything that'll fit in there and, will react to light you can use right right and and there are a lot of people who use you know like x-ray film and and uh stuff like that that is um you know not intended for the use that we use it 
or um, photographic paper or homemade right. homemade emulsions yeah. right that reminds me though now that i've now that we've said that advantage we really ought to try making paper roll film <laughs> you mean like washi paper like just the washi take some film? paper and treat it with an emulsion roll it up on a reel and you know maybe you wouldn't get as many shots because it's thicker or whatever but it seems right. like you could do that. Why not? Why not just use the backing paper? Uh, not all backing. Some backing paper is black, but not all backing paper is black. Well, here's the, the thing that we would. Here's the thing that we would have to do. We would have to make our own film holder, homemade film holder, yeah. with a nice big diameter reel, so that the paper wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't be like like a right super curly hey. shaving coming out of a planer. But hey, this is a, a new invention. What number are we going to use? <laughs> we have to number it, right? So we, uh, that's a that's a seven twenty eight roll. <laughs> well, we can put the numbers wherever we want because right. No, it's good, it's no, I'm talking about name. you know like one thirty five. Oh, the name for one twenty. You know all that type of stuff. Well, I, I think we that. should go. We should go for four digits. Four digits. Just, yeah, this is the twenty first century. One zero zero one. That's it. That's it. <laughs> there we go. There we go. It's all binary and stuff like that. So, um, there, you know, you you said, uh, tell me about the Graflex holders that can hold up to six sheets. Cause I, I can't figure yeah. that out in my head. Okay. So I've never used one, but I have one. And what that is, is it's a, it's just a little box, a little bit bigger than a regular film holder. It only has a dark slide on one side. And what it has is there are these little tiny frames that hold each frame holds one sheet of film, and there's six of them in there. And the thing is designed so that you can... And I really don't quite know how it works, to be honest. But somehow, it shuffles the film so that you can... You shoot one, and then that shuffles it to the back, brings a fresh one up, take it, shuffles it up again. It, it, it allows you to shoot six shots out of one film holder on an old-fashioned view camera. That had to be targeted at press photographers, Oh yeah, I and, mean mostly. Yeah, mostly you just had a few, a bunch of holders in your suit coat pockets, and that was it. You know? Right, but but yeah. why are those folks not going to one twenty? I mean, is the four by five? Well, they all, press? they all, they all. Well, they did. The reason the four. Okay, there was a time in in I would say it would be the fifties when any picture you see of a famous person in public, there was a ring of people taking their picture professional photographers and they would be about half roll of flex shooting 120 and half uh speed graphic crown graphic shooting four by five or two by three sheet film and the reason they were still shooting sheet film you know even after the, the really fantastic roll film cameras were in use was because of the single the advantage of having the single sheet so that if if you were at the last minute and the press was about to roll they could take that one shot that you had scribbled on the, the holder. This is it. Like, this is the oh, one where yeah, yeah. Okay. Frank Sinatra stuck his tongue out, right? And you, they can just develop that one and write to the presses. You don't have to mess with the whole roll. So it, it, the reason it, the reason it held on so long was because the press people that ran the presses wanted that convenience. Um, not so much the, for the photographer's sake. <laughs> so I was just watching a, um, uh, on Netflix, or no, sorry, on Amazon Prime, there is a movie called uh, A Very British Scandal. And it was uh, it was very good. Um, 
But there's one scene where there are all these people, all these press around. And I'm looking at these cameras. Or there are bunches of scenes with the press around. But there's this one scene where there's this guy, this extra, okay, where they have given him a Mamiya C-330. And he is pointing it, like he's looking through the ground glass and pointing it at the sky (laughs) as the guy goes by. And I'm thinking... I'm thinking, I, I, anyway, I, I just, I, I, you know, it, it amused me, of course. You know, and this is, these are the things that we as photographers, you know, where you, you point where, or or if you ever see a movie that's made in your in your hometown, you go, ah, you can't get from there right around the corner to there, right? Okay, but. <laughs> okay, so I can tell you that no one has portrayed blacksmithing correctly in the movie since about 1945. <laughs> yeah well who cares (laughs) that's that's the whole that's the whole point of uh well people who listen to our podcast would get a get a hoot out of that so okay so what are what are the disadvantages of the sheet film system sheet holder yeah so having to stuff you know all these giant things that only give you two images into your pockets is is a pain in the neck and if you're trying to get into the backcountry it's really bad i mean it's not as bad as when they were lugging eight by ten sheets of glass into the mountains, but yeah. it's still a lot of stuff to carry, and, and you only get a few photos. So that's it's very inconvenient. Um, so it's not that good for a snap shooter either, because you know you've got to change the holder every picture. Um, oh, you know, I mentioned that there were ways that you can tell whether the picture's been exposed or not. Uh, but that all depends on you operating the device correctly. So it's easy to get confused and not know whether you exposed an image or not or get a double exposure. You know, it requires you to be paying a lot of attention. Um, uh, those are the main disadvantages. Uh, there are some solutions to some of these things. There, there are much more expensive preloaded sheet film. That It's basically a film that's in a lightproof envelope with a built-in dark slide, and those can be slid into a film holder in daylight. And so you could carry a whole bundle of those in, the, in only one film holder, and that saves a ton of space and weight. Okay. But they're quite a bit more expensive, so, yeah. you know. And those are the yeah. quick loads, right? That's what, that's the quick load system? That's one of the names for them. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Okay. So um, those are the big three. So, um, what alternative methods, uh, do we have of advancing film? Well, I haven't really used much myself, but I've seen, you know, the old cartridges where the the whole, you know, both ends, both ends were inside one, uh, one plastic. It's like a plastic film holder, essentially. Right. Stick inside the camera. Um, you mentioned already that the kind that that pre-advances the film and then sucks it back into the cartridge. So that's another one. Uh, what else? There were, uh, you know, there, the big, the big one that I keep thinking of is the pack film holder. Um, the Polaroid, um, Mm. you know, and Kodak used the same thing when they had an instant camera and Fuji uses the same thing with Instax. And that's just several cards stacked together on top of each other. Oh, right. And so, you it, it has a dark slide on top. You let the dark slide, you know, the first thing it does is eject the dark slide. And then you have um, your your images or your your uh, cards that are light sensitive. Um, you expose it. It sends it out and 
bursts the pack of chemicals um, that, you know, runs between, you know, runs across the film and develops it. Um, And, um, you know, that's a great use of one shot. That's a cool system, although there isn't, no one's making that film anymore, really. Well. Pack film. Um, it's not Inst- that, you're right. It's not that different than the Instax type yeah. or, yeah. Right. Well, Instax the is. Polaroid type. And but Polaroid the traditional, I yeah. guess the traditional pack film that, that they don't make anymore, what distinguished it was that it had a separate negative in there that you could retrieve. That's what was different about it, right? The peel apart type. Yeah. And even like the 600 film that Polaroid made, um, at, towards the end, I used to peel those apart and, um, uh, and, you know, come up with a, tra- uh, a translucent layer um, that I would light from behind. But I haven't, uh, as we mentioned before, I've not gotten into the Polaroid originals or impossible stuff. No. Yeah. So, it's... so those were, you know, and then we have the peel apart film that I, I just don't think we're ever going to see again. So I'm not sure if we, you know, really want to go too deep into the peel apart film uh you were you were talking about um uh the peel apart film and the and the 20 by 24 polaroid do you have a story story with that that you want to oh well want to relate yeah when it's vanished from the past it happens that my sister used to run one of the giant polaroid cameras um for the uh, boston art museum and she had a lot of fun with that thing but you know it's gone there may be someone who's still got some film in a camera somewhere, but it's it's not something that's accessible to anyone anymore. Um, and we've kind of there is an alternative. If you, what I can tell you about it, having seen this, the results from this camera is that it is amazing to have that big of a negative, and it is worth the trouble to build a giant camera if you want to make amazing photographs. And yes, you can't cut the giant Polaroid film anymore. But that was still basically a big sheet of something that you had to put in a tray and develop. Right. And you can still do that. You can make your own emulsions and put them on whatever material you want, expose them in a camera, and make a photograph. That's still completely possible. You just have a little more a little more work to do. So so while we're here talking about film, I'm gonna mention that there is a really practical way to do this as a color system, for instance, which might not occur to everybody. But You can take three black and white photographs of the same scene, each one with a different filter set on the camera. So you're going to only record, you know, the red light with one black and white negative and the blue light with another and the green light with another. And then you can take those three and digitally convert each one into that color type and overlay them. So now we're in, you know, in the computer, but you're doing essentially the same thing that Kodachrome Film did or that any other film does, but you can do it after you've made the exposure. Now, it only works with subjects that hold still long enough for you to take three pictures, but it's a way that you could make a really huge color image with homemade emulsions. I mean, that that's completely, it's totally doable. It's just a bunch of time. I've seen some of those with objects that move. During the ex- during the three, you know, are in between the three exposures. Oh, so the the object changes color and, so, and, right. and location, right? Right, <laughs> and that's and, kind of cool. And yeah. some of that's fun. Um, and I was, I remember, I wanted to do that back in the eighties when I was taking my first photography classes, and I never did 
because I think I wouldn't know how to print it. I think that that was the problem. But well, now the, we now yeah, we can the combine digital stuff digital. so much better now. Yeah. 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 In fact, yeah. actually, you just convert it to a grayscale and throw it into the red channel, green channel, and blue channel. Exactly. Um, so I mean, Photoshop makes it makes it tons easier. So, so then we have the no film holder, um, or no transport system, and that includes, I think, our dry plate and wet plate systems. Um, well, they. They they may or may not have some cameras for those had holders and some didn't. You just okay. basically you had to be able to go in the dark and get the stuff in there one way or the other. Okay, you know? yeah. The okay, but, so so the the no holder, which is essentially a one shot camera. Mm-hmm. Um, this was something uh, Corey Cannon once again on the um, uh, Lensless podcast was talking about. Uh, he wanted to do an 8x10, I think he said 8x10, maybe it's 4x5, 8x10 or 4x5 um, pinhole camera that had just one, you know, it de- doesn't have a holder, doesn't do any, you know, it. you load it in, you take it out, you shoot it, and you bring it back. And, and here was his logic, and I love the logic of it. He says, you know, if you load up three holders, three 4x5 holders, say, and you go out, you're going to shoot six shots because you get two shots per holder, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you know, what he, he what he said was you're going to get two or three really good shots. But then you're going to get, uh, I'm out. Um, I'm going to just shoot, uh, you know, I'm out shooting. I better shoot the other two. And he said that the quality wasn't there. Uh, for some of those, you know, for, for some of the later shots in those systems. So he was purposely limiting himself to just that one eight by 10, uh, or four by five. I forget which one it was, but, um, uh, so he would go out and he would do that one exposure and that was all he did for that day or that trip. I think, I think it, that really just depends on your personality. Because yes, another, per- another personality would end up with no photographs because they'd be saving their one, right. <laughs> or one thing. Right. And then just yeah, as I think the sun is about I, to go down, they take a picture of like, you know, the back end of a cow because that's all that was, you know, they had time <laughs> to do. <laughs> that sounds like Graham from, uh, Sunny 16. Um, he, <laughs> right. He always finishes the role in like the parking lot. Or whatever, right, right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So it, it, let's get to your dream, um, format, your, your dream method of, um, of, um, what am I trying to say? Uh, You're uh, trying to say what of all this of all this confusion that we've yeah. been trying to trying to describe. What do I like the best? No, no, I'm talking about the variable variable format ones. The um, the the. Uh, it wasn't that what you were talking about. That was your dream was to make a. Oh, you're talking about the the invention. Okay, so yeah, so my favorite. By far, my favorite film transport systems are basically anything that handles medium format film because I fall I fall in between you know the the view camera single shot type and the you know person with a motor drive and a hundred feet of thirty five millimeter <laughs> yeah. film in their camera like I I'm willing to be patient and try and get a few good shots and I love the big high resolution film the, 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 especially for the color that it produces but but. 
I, you know, I need more than the one shot. And also it's expensive. So yeah. 120 film you can get for a fairly reasonable price. You can get some really, really beautiful negatives. I'm happy with that for the most part. And I love the, the flexibility of it. So because you can, you can get everything from a giant panorama to a little, you know, square or rectangle. So it's, it's by far my favorite. But as we were discussing earlier, there are, you end up needing a whole bunch of different cameras and film holders to, to get all those different formats. And it would be really interesting to try and design a film holder that could put out pretty much any format that makes sense on 120 film. And the key there would be an advanced system that you could adjust to measure whatever amount of film you wanted for each shot and then a way to put in the right shape mask for that particular uh, format. And it's, I've been thinking of ways to do it. It's, it doesn't have to be super complicated. I think we can come up with a simple mechanical solution. I don't mm-hmm. think we need, you know, some digital magic. I think it's a, it's a problem that we can solve. It would be fun to try anyway. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, my, my thing with that is I just have to, uh, I, I want it to also do 135 in there. Uh, so we'll have to figure that out. We'll, but, but, you know, 135 panorama, you know, um, yeah, so I have a I have a device I'm putting together for Mercury Works that's going to convert yeah. a um, a roll film holder into a 135, and that's so that's pretty straightforward to do. Um, yeah, there's I need already, to order one. There's already little gadgets that you can get that will let the the smaller cartridge fit in the space of the larger spool and function. So that's easy. Um, the key part is figuring out how to measure you know, the travel. So most of the systems now, so mine just uses a mechanical roll film back. And so I get seven centimeters of film every time because that's what that roll film holder is designed to do. Um, and so what I'm talking about is coming up with one that can, where you can set it for any number of centimeters travel for each, each roll. That would be really fun. The trick with all of these is that with roll film, you can't just turn a crank the same number of times and get the same result. Because what's happening is the take-up reel, each time you reel it one turn, it gets thicker. And so each time you turn it, it takes more film into its embrace. So the mechanical systems are designed to take a little, to turn a little bit less each time. And it's really important to start the film in exactly the right place so that the amount that, that the amount that it decreases in turn with each advance is going to be the correct amount. Right. Um, and those kinds of mechanical holders can be a pain when you, when you aren't paying attention, there's usually an arrow to, at the start of the roll film. And there's very often, if you study it in a little arrow inside the film holder, and you're supposed to get those arrows aligned before you close up the back and start the mechanical advance. Um, so that the, as the, taken up the take up reel gets thicker and thicker it's getting thicker by the exact right amount to get the the proper results out of the clockwork so with all these systems uh which do you find the most useful well, I'm strongly in favor of the the film holders 
that are made for medium and large format cameras that you can switch from one camera to another. And it's because, first of all, they're usually, uh, they function, some of them, the better ones function really well. And you you may spend a little money to get one, you know, $40 to $100, depending on how fancy you want to get. But once you have the one good roll film holder, you can use it on lots of different cameras. So that's economically really efficient. Another great thing about those interchangeable ones is that you can just, you can just, uh, change, you could have like one with black and white film, one with color film, and you don't have to waste any film. You just put the right one on the camera, take the picture. Okay. Now I'm done with that. I want color. You just switch it over. So they're also, they save film as well. So they're, they're just super practical. And they also make your life easy when you're building your own camera because one of the hardest things is to make a light tight film transport system that works. And if you use a roll film holder, you're, that's taken care of. Now, among roll film holders, some of them are designed only for specific cameras and those are harder to work with. But back in, I don't remember how long ago, but many, many decades ago, the Graflex camera company started making a universal connection for their film holders and many many other camera companies copied it and especially large format cameras all use that standard so the graph lock standard is what it's called and there are two sizes four by five and two by three um for medium format and large format cameras and they make both sheet film holders and roll film holders in a, a wide range of uh formats that can go on any camera with that back. Um, the Mercury Works cameras are Graflex standard. Uh, all the Graflex cameras were. And a few of the other companies, so Arby's 67 cameras, will take Graflock. Do, uh, do you know, do the do the RZ system, does that use... I have so an RB67, but I... Yeah, I've no, never the, used an the short answer... The short answer, well... Um, I, you know, I don't know for sure. Now that you're saying okay. it, I'm I'm having doubts. I think only the RBs fit Graflock. They did change several things with the RZ, including the the flangeback distance. So even the lenses don't transfer between RB and RZ. So it's, I have a feeling it doesn't work, and it may be because they wanted to add in a bunch of mechanical connections between the camera and the film back. And the Graflock standard is it's an independent film back. The film back takes care of everything to do with the film and the camera takes care of making the exposure and there's no communication between the two. But more sophisticated cameras like uh, like the uh, Hasselblad, they have interchangeable backs, but they talk to the camera and actually they're a pain in the neck because <clears throat> you can mess them up if you don't have everything in sync because, you know, the whole the whole photographic operation from one end of the camera to the other has to be all synchronized. Whereas in all graph like it doesn't matter if you, as long as you remember to take out the <laughs> dark slide, you're going to get a picture. You know. Yeah, that was one of the things that uh, uh, that the RB67 actually drove me a little bit nuts on was that there were it you would take the picture, but then there were two things to do. You would you would uh, advance the film on the back using mm-hmm. the the winder on the back but then you would have to also raise the mirror and cock the lens using cock a different yeah, yeah. yeah or cock yeah. the shutter and i would do one or the other 
constantly. Yeah, so you were but, just you're just programmed uh, by a 35 millimeter camera. So right. That it's, once once it's once you use old fashioned cameras, yeah, because all the old cameras have separate film advance and shutter. Right. And the, the people that you know the cameras that started to make it easier were like Rolleiflex, Automat. That was one that that took the thinking away from the person. But once you get used to the old style, there's certain advantages to it. For instance, I'm really getting to like having the uh, dark slide. So if I get my camera all set up and I'm not sure how things are going to go, I can just fire it and reset it because the dark slide's in. So I'm not going to waste any film. So, you know, it's one of those things that it's a little less, it's a little less automatic, but you can do more things with it. Uh, and that's the same with these film holders. You can swap them around willy nilly between all these different brands of camera with no, no issue. And that's great. I mean, there are plenty of times when I have some really nice film in a film holder and I'm taking pictures on one camera and I realize, no, I really want a completely different lens and I don't have one for this camera. That doesn't matter. I can just take the same film holder and put it on the other camera and I'm good to go. So I'm pretty much trying to get all my medium and large format that I possibly can into uh, the Graflux standard as much as possible because of the the convenience and and the money saving, and, you know, and and they were made in all those different sizes too, everything from uh, you know six four five to um, to six by nine. Well, and, you can get you can get up to six by seventeen, and I think even wider. Oh, six by seventeen. Would that be the four by five uh, graph lock? Yeah, four by five graph lock. Actually, they they make ones even wider than four by five that work on a four by five graph lock body. That really, they, you, yeah, you can get these. I think that there's a Chinese company making them, or you can pay a whole lot of money from some of the older camera companies. Uh, to you, they make ones that the film holder is like expands back from. It has a graph lock back mount. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing gets even wider as it goes back, so it puts the film farther away. So okay. it doesn't work. It doesn't work with. It only works with a camera which moves the lens back and forth. So this is something for view view camera. Um, but it, but it does allow you to put a really really wide be, uh, film back on huh. a standard four by five camera. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that's nice of, uh, about the the system is that the film advance is contained and does not need any communication with the body at all. Mm -hmm. So you can put essentially anything on the front there. And that's essentially what my, um, 67, uh, camera, the pinhole camera that I have is essentially just a, a body, uh, slid onto a graph lock back um, and it's a pinhole camera. So I put my finger in front of the pinhole, remove the dark slide, let it stop moving, move my finger out of the way. That's the exposure time, you know, put my finger back on and throw that dark slide back on. And, uh, and there's no communication between the front and the back other than the, you know, communication I make. <laughs> you know, it's it's time yeah, so, to advance the film. Sure. The, the very simplest camera to make, you know, the most foolproof for the most clumsy person would probably be to, like, put a pinhole in one end of a can and then tape the can onto a, a roll film holder. Sure. <laughs> and then you're good to go. <laughs> sure. You could, yeah, you could do it with half a beer can, you know. Right. Um, right. 
that's 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 a challenge. <laughs> I think it, it would be a Fresca can. Yes. Oh, it would have to be yeah, a Fresca right. can since that's right. what I'm drinking tonight. So, um, you know, you could you could do that with cardboard. Um, you can also do it with lenses in that the the backs will open up and the film advance um mechanism it's actually those backs are in two parts right so there's uh there's an overall case that keeps it all light tight and then there is in, an insert that has the film advance uh duties and yeah, they kind of fit within within each other but right. the advantage of that is you can remove the insert open up the back and remove the insert and then put a little ground glass right there where at the film plane and do focusing if you want to add a lens to it so you you oh yeah, i've never thought of doing that yeah okay so the the normal way that they're used is that you would have a, a ground glass that's designed to put that ground glass exactly the same distance back from the graph lock mount as the film will be and you would switch between the two that's the typical view camera solution. The other way it works is that the whole ground glass sometimes is on a spring-loaded uh, swing arm, so you can pull it away from the camera and slide the film hol holder behind it. Um, so there are different ways to connect the these parts together, but they still all work with the same graph lock. You're you're equipment. you're working with an idea that you would use. You would do a view camera system like focusing i'm talking about in the development of the body and say you're going to set the camera up either with a a helical um and yeah you're you're talking about being able to test test it and develop what it. works right right in right, the right. developing of that yeah. so um so these things are are very easy to use during that that type of development stage yep they make it easier to build a homemade camera by a long shot yeah, yeah they're really useful well, I, and I love them even that I like them even with ready-made cameras. I mean, I just think they're a great way to handle film. Sure. Yeah. Removable backs are super useful. Now, also, if you use, uh, I came across, uh, about, I don't know, probably eight, nine months ago, I came across an auction for the revolving mechanism of RB67s. Now, these are, taken from RB67s that were parted out for one reason or another. And so it was four revolving mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Now, the great thing about this system, uh, the RB67 uh, system, was that you could revolve the back 90 degrees. And that would alleviate the whole problem of turning the camera to shoot portrait or turning the camera to shoot landscape. You just turn the back. Yeah, quite a few view cam cameras have revolving backs too because they're really awkward to turn on their side. Sure. Uh, so that was, um, you know, it, it, I don't know how often those types of things come up, but if you find an RB67 body for parts, um, they're not expensive. They're in the $40 range, so they're not mm -hmm. really expensive. So um, you, you might want to uh, go down that route and... And remove that back from the body. Uh, yeah, it's, and, that could be really handy. Yeah. Um, 
So, um, what you were talking about the the uh, Mercury Works kit that is that turns the an RB sixty seven film holder into the panoramic. So mm-hmm. that's essentially the same size as the X Pan. Am I right with that? Yeah, it's a ba- it's basically a double wide thirty five millimeter okay. frame. So you get a, a really nice. So I guess what is that? I don't know what the exact measurement is, but it's approximately instead of two by three, it's approximately two by six. Okay, and and that's a nice nice panorama. It's good and wide, but it isn't too squished down. You know, so right? It's a, it's very and it's a good way to use thirty five millimeter film because you're essentially. If you're willing to accept that shape of an image, you're doubling the resolution, and and that's it makes for a, a much more impressive image than you can get uh, out of 35 millimeter film any other way. So with the with those conversions, what you're really just doing is you're putting in some kind of little devices that will connect the the uh, cartridge's turning mechanism to the uh, 120 spool holding parts on your roll film holder so that when you advance the film it'll rotate the uh, it'll it'll pull in the uh, 35 millimeter film and the other thing is that there will be a mask that creates this the right shape smaller opening um, to support the film and hold it flat and uh, basically delineate the image on the on the film and those in this case they're just some plastic parts that you put together you have to have a, a screwdriver you know, to do this, but it's pretty easy. Um, but it's something that you could work out for all sorts of film holders or, or old cameras. And a lot of people do it for cameras that are in some format that is, you know, the film isn't available anymore. So you will just use a, a different size film and adapt it. Uh, so what do you think is the biggest disadvantage of the graph lock system? It's not, it's, it's they're the main problem. My main objection is that the the film holders that are available are they're kind of bulky and they're often heavy, and some of them require some extra attention to make them work right. Um, it, in the end, if you're shopping for one, it does kind of pay to get the newer ones. The newer ones work a lot better than the older ones, and they require less thought and less thinking to to make them work right. Um, so the biggest problem is if you're trying to make a compact camera, they get in the way because they're big and heavy, relatively speaking. So if you, you know, that's when you need to make a camera where the, the whole film handling system is built into the camera and then you're sort of starting from scratch. So, you know, if you're willing to work a little harder, you can make a much smaller, more compact camera if you don't have an interchangeable back. I'm just kind of spitballing here, but, um, my big, issue with this is that it's um it doesn't have it's very limited compatibility with 135 film so i'm wondering well it's not designed for it i mean right so 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 one could make that's that's where i'm a new standard yeah like a new interchangeable back there were 135 film cameras with interchangeable backs that exists but it was kind of exotic and rare and it would be wonderful to make that a standard. Like I, I would love to see some simple standard interchangeable parts stuff developed for 35 because there's so many cheap lenses. There's so much, there's so much film. There's, there's so much to work with in that format, but you, 
most of the cameras mean you sacrifice the flexibility that you get with those medium format systems. So I think it would be great to develop a, a you know a new standard back that's interchangeable for, for 135. That'd be great. And it could be small too. I have a lot of books and I, I always read a lot when I get into a, a, a field and want to learn more about it. Books are where I, where I start and always have. And the, the, so I have a lot of books that feed into the homemade camera idea and the, but I'm going to start with the two that are most directly relevant. And, and these two books I use all the time as a reference and they are specifically about making your own cameras and they're both modern recent books so they're completely up to date with all the latest kinds of uh, ways you can go about making your own camera. And they also are filled with examples of all kinds of amazing and genius photographers that have put together their own cameras. <clears throat> the first book is called Adventures with Pinhole and Homemade Cameras, and it's by John Evans. I don't know whether it's in print or not, but it's easily available still. And that camera book has a whole bunch of examples of, of really amazing cameras people have made, photographs they've taken with them, and then it has a whole section of practical information to use in designing and building your own cameras on materials, on uh, <clears throat> lens design, pinhole design. It's a great book. And then the other one is a uh, in print. It's a recent book. It's called Experimental Photography, A Handbook of Techniques. There's a whole list of authors, but it's in print. It's recent. Um, we should put on, on the website so you, with the, the rest of the information. And that's the same kind of a book with a lot of um, really interesting examples of not just cameras, but different um, methods of making your own film, of different uh, processing methods of what they call operative hacks, where you take a normal camera and just use it wrong or in some new way. <laughs> So there's a whole range of um, really interesting stuff in that book. They're both really, really useful. Nick, how are you coming with your garbage can? It's still in the garbage. I, I hate to. I hate to say. <laughs> oh <laughs> but, uh, boy! Uh, but uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Oh, I. It's, there's something about about this. Well, the main problem is that I haven't got around to getting my darkroom functioning, so that's really why I haven't done it. I sure. guess. But but there is something about. I just don't even want this camera to be honest. <laughs> and I then know. I'd be stuck using it. <laughs> I know, I know. Maybe so, we maybe so, we should maybe we should. Uh, I can suggest a, it. I can suggest a mo one single modification to the rules that would that would increase my enthusiasm. Okay, so what's the modification? We if one were allowed to use one inexpensive thing that came from a real camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that's and what didn't it's have to be. use one hundred percent garbage. Yeah, then I would I would open things up a lot. 
<laughs> How about we limit it to you use a lens or you use a body oh, or a film or, holder or a film transport. So, so yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. So it is the modified, it is the junkyard cam challenge. As and I don't care the, if there's a handicap. I don't care if I have like, I don't know if I, if I have to carry extra weight or something. <laughs> <laughs> you dance too prettily. You're going to have to wear, you're going to have to have a bag of that sand. Was a Kurt, that was a Kurt Vonnegut story. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Uh, wasn't, isn't right. that a fairy tale though? No, you well, did. Well, it's also, it's also a Kurt Vonnegut story and it's also what they do to horses in the horse race. So, oh, right. You know, yeah. yeah. Yep. I'm, okay, well, I'm so, gonna so that would encourage then, that so. would encourage me, and uh, okay, it, it might help. And we'll, then, we'll do that. We'll do and that. Have you? What are you building now? What are you working? Okay, on? well, I um, I have been working on this last little bit. First of all, I went, was on vacation, so I was working on shooting. Um, and um, either, there we're going to do a show about the '63. Um, but, but we're not going to do it yet. But one of the things that I really discovered on this latest trip, because I brought it, was the idea that this is not a robust camera. This is not, (laughs) you know, but so, so I have to, so I started thinking about how do I make it a robust camera? You know, do I, I make the wall sticker. I make, you know, uh, so I need to work with that. Yeah, put um, about a half half an inch of gaffer tape on it. Just yeah, there we go. Just <laughs> <laughs> why gaffer tape? Let's use that gorilla tape or something. Yeah, or, that's you true. Know, that'll never. Right, right. Um. So 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 that's one thing, and uh, and that's one of the most important things. But it it's also that well, I have a rule. Okay. Um. When I go out photographing, when it if if I'm in a car and I'm going to a beautiful place, I'll take four or five cameras. I don't have any problem with that. But once I get out of the car, I can only have one camera with me. And the reason for that is I hate juggling cameras. I hate having more than one camera on straps and all that type of thing. Well, I have to do something for that camera for me to pick that camera as I get out of the car. Or if I'm going to, you know, or for instance, if I'm on a vacation and, you know, I'm going to go on the duck ride through Seattle, that type of thing. Uh, I want to make sure that, you know, it it's going to to be robust enough to do that. And so that's mm-hmm. something I, I really have to work on. So the other thing is that that I, I got back to school after six weeks off. And, um, all of the nozzles are clogged. Uh, I have a couple of different print heads, but the nozzles are clogged on the 3D printer. So I've ordered new nozzles. Uh, I need to change the clip on the belt. So, so that thing's down for at least for, for a couple of days. So, uh, what I, uh, I, I think I posted some pictures of this on, uh, Flickr and Instagram. A pinhole camera made from wood. Um, that was, uh, Oh, you made one that looked like a birdhouse. It looks like a birdhouse. birdhouse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, It's really rough because I. That'd be good for bird photography. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) I'll, I'll set it up in front of the, in front of the, uh, hummingbird feeder. Let's see what we get there. Um, Oh, no. I think you're, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get cavity nesters, but they're going (laughs) to, you're going to be disappointed looking 
That's and close right. up. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. What the heck is that thing? Um, so, uh, so I did that, uh, but I, I haven't finished it out. I haven't sealed it. I need to seal it. Um, uh, light seal it and I need to, uh, fit it a little bit better. Um, and put in some, some seals, but it's going to, going to, it's going to slide in, um, a graph lock back as well. So, so that's what so I've been working on. That's a pinhole camera. So what kind of roughly, what kind of exposures are we talking about? Um, it'll probably, I haven't done the math. Um, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the focal distance will end up being, uh, but I'll probably use a 0.25 millimeter you know, a quarter of a millimeter. Uh, so at least a minute or something like that. No. Depending on the film or. No. Uh, um, Sunny, that'll be probably three seconds. Three something seconds. Something along those lines. Yeah. Oh, yeah well, yeah, absolutely. you could, you could, you, if you, maybe if you put a little tray of food under the lens, the bird will stay long <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Or I could just shoot bats with it. If I had bats, actually, you know, a pinhole the... bird feeder wouldn't be a bad idea. I don't know. I, I think wonder. It's worth a try. I'm wondering if you could do that, like with solarography. You know, you do it with paper or something. No, I I think a few seconds is about right because you you might get some birds holding still, some flying around. I think it's a good yeah. idea. Pinhole bird feeder. And also in the 67, I'm trying to uh, track down a light leak. So it, but it's a really strange light. I think it is light bouncing around on the inside. Um, because it is a curved space. It mm. is a curved leak. So, and it's generally in the same spot. You've got some um, kind of nor- northern lights taking place inside that, your camera. Or, or, yeah. or space aliens or, or yeah. ghosts or something. So what have you been working on? So I, I got my, uh, crown field camera put together and, um, actually right. shot, shot a roll of film with it. And it's, it's a, it will get refined a little, but it's fully functional. So I, I'm going to just use it for a while. And, and then after a while, I'll have a list of things to fix and make better. But it's okay. functional. So that's exciting because it's been... it's I've been accumulating the parts and scratching my head for weeks and weeks. Months and months have gone by. And then one day, I sort of got everything and put it on the table. And I thought, hey, look, if you attach this to here and that to there, and it just all went together. So Nice. Yeah, it was... It was uh, Maybe it was planned. I don't know. But anyway, it's finally together. That's the main thing uh, okay. in terms of do it yourself. I have one more thing that I'm working on. And I guess I didn't, I haven't discussed this yet. It's short. Um, someone gave me a broken Hasselblad and I discovered that one of the things that's broken on it is that the roll film holder doesn't work properly. And when you turn the crank, it just advances the film as much as you turn the crank. And these things actually had a window in them, so you could read the wind, the numbers on the back of the film. So this is a perfectly functional 6x6 roll film holder that I can use to make a homemade camera because it's broken. If it was still functional, it wouldn't work without being attached to the Hasselblad. And I'm just going to put a pinhole on it and have a great little 6x6 uh, pinhole camera. So I'm pretty excited about that. All right. So there were, uh, we did have a couple of emails, um, this last little bit. Um, this one's from Neil Piper. Um, he was, he said, um, you know, just wanted to send you a quick email, uh, to thank you, uh, for putting out the podcast. Whilst I don't pretend to understand everything that you guys talk about, I don't think we do either. Um, <laughs> 
I could follow plenty, uh, plenty enough to start formulating plans for my own homemade camera builds. That's what we want. Yay. Um, although, uh, I haven't made anything from scratches yet, unless you, uh, include the classic pinhole camera made from whatever's lying around. Uh, once I have a little bit of spare time, I fully intend to start something a little bit more technical. He said he has uh, attached a picture of the first camera that he ever modified, an old 1950s Ensign Full View. Do you know the Ensign Full View, Nick? No, no. Okay, it is this incredible, it looks to me like it's cast steel. Or cast iron. No, I mean, it's got that kind of rough, that rough surface, you know, that you would get from the, the sand. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's cast yeah. aluminum. Who knows? Well, it could be, it is possible to sand cast aluminum. Yeah, yes. right, right. So it, it's that, it, but it's, but it looks like a periscope coming out of the front. It kind of looks like a Dalek to a certain extent. Um, <laughs> But it is, but it's absolutely, anyway, it's one of my favorite, I think it is one of the most beautiful cameras ever made. So this is what he's starting with. This is what he's starting with. And, but it's a, it's a faux TLR, um, in that I think it's a view camera. Uh, it's a view out of the top lens as opposed to, um, you know, an actual focusing mechanism. Right. It's just, so, right. It's just a, a a mirror to see the world. So it, it has the, it it's exactly like a peep one, except it reverses everything, so it's actually worse. Right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. It, yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, it spends its life. Uh, uh, he continues on. Uh, it spends its life as a very capable six by six pinhole camera, equipped with a laser drilled pinhole from James from Reality So Subtle. Uh, there, he sent a couple of uh, images, and I will put them on the um put them on our uh page uh on homemadecamera.com so that was one ian fleming this is the one that i was uh ian fleming said uh hi i'm really enjoying your podcast i too love dora goodman's work um and uh we you know i went back and looked at that um uh you know a little bit uh and she just has some some really uh, really great stuff. So, um, anyway, uh, if you guys want to email us, hopefully I'll do a better job of reading your emails, uh, in the future. Uh, you can get a hold of me, uh, Graham at homemadecamera.com. You can get a hold of Nick at Nick at homemadecamera.com, or you can also, um, email the, uh, podcast podcast at homemadecamera.com. I also want to, uh, shout out to Todd Schlemmer. He does the Terrapin pinhole cameras and, uh, some other stuff. I've been talking with him back and forth about the, about production and, uh, hopefully we'll get him on in not too long because he, uh, he does some, uh, 3D printed cameras and then he also makes those plans available, uh, for free for anybody, uh, to use. Do you have any, uh, shout outs? Uh, I would just mention Dirk Fletcher. Uh, I know, just know him from looking at his cameras that he's created on Flickr. So if you look up Dirk Fletcher on Flickr, you'll see a whole lot of amazing homemade cameras. Absolutely. Uh, they're not, they're not just great designs, but they look really great as well. So they're inspiring. Yes, absolutely. So, um, 
Our group on Flickr is the Homemade Camera Podcast. I am Freezer of Photons on Flickr. All one word, Freezer of Photons. Nick is Nick Lyle on Flickr, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, on Instagram, you can also find me, Graham Homemade Camera. Um, and you can use the Homemade Camera Podcast hashtag if you want to as well. We're part of the Film Podcast Network for a listing of film and experimental photography podcasts. Visit thefilmpodcastnetwork.com. If you have a podcast yourself, there's a form for you to fill out uh, information about your podcast and submit it to the listings. And that's nonprofit, and I don't make any money off that. I just do it because I hate missing podcasts. And also, thanks again, as usual, to Robbie Cribs of Soundtrap Studios for kindly composing our theme music and allowing us to use it for this show.